congregation, boys and girls, you all know the story of the rich young ruler. This young man who came to the Lord Jesus and who had this earnest question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? At least it appeared that he was concerned about that question, a question that should concern all of us. And then Jesus answers him in a remarkable way. He begins to list all of the commandments. Just imagine being there. You could see a smile come on the face of that young man. Because as Christ listed all the commandments, it was as if he put a check mark behind each of them. I did that. I did that. I did that. And so therefore he sincerely answered Jesus and said, all these things have I kept from my youth. So in his own mind, his life was flawless. Or we could say, on the outside, it was flawless. Outwardly, this man appeared to be living a perfect life, at least so he thought. And that what does just Jesus do? He shifts the attention to the inside, from the outside to the inside. And he now addresses the very motives, the inner motives of that young man. And he says to him, very well, go and sell all that you have and follow me. And then we read that that young man was grieved. He was grieved greatly because he had many possessions. See, outwardly, everything looked well. And in that context, in that culture, that young man thought that that's the only thing that mattered. Because that's what the Pharisees emphasized. For the Pharisees, all that mattered is that you looked well on the outside. All that mattered to them is whether the outside of the cup was clean. That's why Jesus referred to them as whited sepulchers, as decorated graves. And especially the rich and wealthy and the Pharisees belonged to that class. Oh, how they would love to decorate their graves. Those graves looked impressive. But inside of those decorated graves was the stench of death. And that's why, as is true for all the Beatitudes... It was a stunning statement when Jesus said to his disciples and to the multitude that had gathered, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are pure on the inside, not just on the outside. And that, and that beatitude, that remarkable beatitude, as they all are, we will focus on this morning as we consider verse 8 of Matthew 5, the simple and profound words, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So three simple points, as we have done with the other Beatitudes. So boys and girls, what is the first question? Who are these people? What is the nature of the pure in heart? Number one. Number two, the conduct of the pure in heart. How do they behave themselves? 
How does that purity, that inward purity, how does that manifest itself? And thirdly, the blessedness of the pure in heart. Because as we see in our text, the privilege of the pure in heart is extraordinary. Because Christ says, those who are pure on the inside, who are pure within, they shall see God. And I hope that you would recognize, even you boys and girls, I hope you would recognize that there is no greater privilege that can befall a human being than to be able to see God. So the nature of the pure in heart the conduct of the pure in heart, and the blessedness of the pure in heart. And so, congregation, very quickly, by way of review, we are now dealing with how that inward disposition of the Christian, that inward frame of heart, how that manifests itself in the life of the Christian. And so we have seen that the recognition of my spiritual poverty and therefore the recognition that my only hope is in the mercy of God makes me a merciful person towards others, recognizing that they are in need of the same mercy that God has bestowed upon me. The second component of that inward disposition, of course, as we know, was that those who recognize that spiritual bankruptcy, who recognize what they have become as a sinner, what it means to be a sinner, they mourn over that. That's not just an intellectual conclusion, one plus one equals two. No, the, tr- the Christian grieves over his sinnership. They mourn over that sinnership. And thirdly, it makes us meek. Meekness is that disposition of a person for whom God has become real, for a person who therefore takes their proper place before God. And all of that, as we have seen, that that recognition of my sinnership, that grieving over my sinnership, that humbling of myself before God, that will result in that hungering and thirsting after that righteousness which alone will render me acceptable in God's sight. That righteousness which God requires of us, that righteousness which we lack, and that righteousness that is to be found in Christ, that righteousness which God freely bestows upon all those who put their trust in His only begotten Son. And so we have seen that that fourth beatitude is the very heart of the Christian life. That the experience of the Christian revolves around that hungering and thirsting after Christ and finding our satisfaction in Him alone. And that spills over. When we are filled to overflowing with the grace of God in Christ, that will spill over into our lives, making us merciful, but also rendering us pure in heart. And just like being poor in spirit connects with being merciful, so mourning over sin matches the other beatitude, namely the purity of heart. Because those who mourn over sin have a deep desire 
to live a life that is acceptable to God. And it's very significant, congregation, that Christ doesn't just say, blessed are the pure, blessed are the holy, but that he specifically adds this description, blessed are the pure in heart. And so what Christ is clearly saying right at the outset here is that what matters to God, and that should matter to us, congregation, what matters to God is not what you look like on the outside, but first and foremost, what you look like on the inside. Now, let me hasten to add, I'm not suggesting that it doesn't matter what your life looks like on the outside. Throughout my ministry, I have met people who have told me that. He said, Pastor, it doesn't matter what my life looks like on the outside. God looks on the inside. Well, that's, that's a false connection, you see. That's not true. Because as we will point out to you, that inward purity that characterizes the true believer, that inward purity will manifest itself outwardly. But the difference between a believer and a Pharisee is that for the Pharisee, that outward decoration, that outward show of holiness does not come from within. But for the true Christian, that holiness, that godliness, the godly walk of the Christian comes from within the Christian. And the pure in heart, they understand that God looks at my heart. That God is the one who really knows me. Who knows exactly what that heart of mine looks like. Samuel, or God said to Samuel, remember when Samuel went to visit the house of Jesse to anoint the next king? And Samuel was wrong. He saw these attractive young men and he thought for sure one of them was it. But then God said to Samuel, the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For a man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. That's it. The apostle writes in Hebrews 4 that all things, all things are open and naked before the God with whom we have to do. A congregation. What does God see in your heart? What does God see in my heart? Now let me quickly comfort you by saying, Christ is not suggesting that believers, while they are here, ever achieve that perfect purity of heart which they so desire. But in principle, that is a reality. A reality because of the marvelous work of the Holy Spirit who trans forms my heart from a cesspool of iniquity into a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, transforming my heart from a synagogue of Satan into a temple of God himself. And so that word heart, of course, is one of those key words of the Bible a very important word that we need to focus on time and time again. 
I've done this before, but I'll do it again because I need to here in this context. And so even our boys and girls, you understand, of course, I'm not talking about that heart that's beating inside of your chest. That's your physical heart. Now, just like your physical heart is needed in order for your body to function, so your soul, that spiritual part of who we are, our soul also also has a heart. That's a spiritual heart. And when the Bible talks about our heart, it talks about who we really are on the inside. It talks about the very inner core of our being. Our heart is where the faculties of our soul intersect, intersect and interact with each other. What are those faculties again? What are the faculties of our soul with which God equipped us when he created us in his image? There are three. Boys and girls, you can remember that too. And I want you to remember that. You will hear it often from me. So listen carefully. God gave us a mind. He gave us affections or emotions. And he gave us a will. And why did God create us that way? Why did he give us the faculty of a mind and, if, and, if, and affections or emotions and a will? Because he created us for the specific purpose of being able to know him, to be able to love him, and to be able to serve him. Try to remember that. To know him, to love him, and to serve him. In that order. That order is very significant, congregation. Because the reason why a Christian, the reason why a godly person desires to live obediently to God, because not only do we know Him, but by grace we love the God we know. And because we love the God we know, that's why we desire to serve the God we know and we love. And all of those faculties, they intersect, they, they all mesh together in that inner core of our being. And by nature, that heart of us, that heart of ours, is a cesspool. It's a cesspool of moral filth. Jeremiah, the famous words of Je- Jeremiah 17 verse 9, you have heard that many times. But think about it, the heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The depravity of the human heart is beyond our grasp. God only knows the full extent of the depravity of the human heart. And never forget, when we get all Upset about the news we hear, we hear about these extraordinary manifestations of depravity. Just remember that we have a heart by nature that is potentially capable of all of that. Desperately wicked, who can know it? That's why as fallen sinners, we have no desire to know God. No desire to love Him. No desire to serve Him. And so by nature, we're only interested in ourselves, to know about ourselves, and we love ourselves, and we desire to serve ourselves. 
And Jesus describes the state of their heart by nature. He says, for from within, from the inside, from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. Do you believe that those sins hide in your heart? Do you believe that that is a true picture of the heart? One of the reasons why biblical Christianity is so offensive to an ungodly world. Because the Bible tells us the truth about ourselves. The Bible tells us our true spiritual diagnosis. And that's why the work of regeneration is such an extraordinary work of God. Because in regeneration, God gives us a new heart. He transforms that heart of mine so that that heart of mine again begins to function as God designed it to function. And so in Ezekiel 36, we have one of those wonderful promises where God promises to do precisely that. He promised that to Israel, and he still does that today. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you or will I purify you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. The analogy is obvious. A heart of stone is a heart that does not move, a heart that is dead, a heart that is unresponsive. But God says, I will take away that stony heart out of you, and I will give you a heart of flesh, a heart that functions again, a heart that lives. And you see, it is that new heart that will produce a new life. And that's why Christ phrases it this way. He wants us to understand there will never be a new life unless there is a new heart. There will never be purity of life unless there is purity of heart. And so it is that new heart which is the fountain of true religion. It is that new heart which is the holy of holies of the temple of God's spirit. It is that new heart that is expressed in David's words in Psalm 119, verse 10, with my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, that heart begins to function again. And we can examine ourselves today even in light of this. How do you know that you have a new heart? How do I know that I have a new heart? Well, ask yourselves three questions. Is it your chief desire to know God? To know God, to know more of Him? Is that the the deepest longing of your soul, to know God? Secondly, do you love this God? Do you love Him? And thirdly, is it your wholehearted desire to serve Him, to live a life in obedience to Him and His revealed will? So, boys and girls, 
Do you know God? Do you love Him? Do you serve Him? Those are the evidences of a new heart, a heart that the Holy Spirit has transformed into a pure heart. And so Adam was a man whose heart was pure. His heart was perfectly pure until he fell. And then he lost it. He lost that purity of heart. But now the wonderful truth of the gospel is that God sent His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent Him to be the second Adam. The second Adam in whom God is creating a new humanity. A new humanity. The second Adam whose heart was perfectly pure, just like the first Adam. The apostle writes of the, of the second Adam, of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in Hebrews 7, that he was holy, he was harmless, he was undefiled. And now the wonderful work of the Lord Jesus Christ by his Spirit, as he unites us to himself, that's what happens in regeneration. When we are made spiritually alive, when we receive that new heart, we are united to that Christ. And you see, when we are united to that Christ, it cannot be that that heart of mine will begin to be pure again. And I know that in this life, that, heart will, that my heart will never be perfectly pure, which we will see in a moment is the grief of those who are pure in heart. But the point remains where Christ accomplishes that marvelous work by His Spirit, where He gives us that new heart. When we are in Christ, that purity of heart will begin to manifest itself. Because after all, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, the believer is a new creature in Christ. And so Paul writes in Titus 2 verse 14 about Christ. It says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. And listen carefully. And purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Purify unto himself a peculiar people. Now, the word peculiar, the way we use it today, uh, is a bit of a pejorative word, but peculiar means a special people, a unique people, a distinct people, a people who will distinguish themselves as desirous to live a pure life flowing out of a renewed heart. And so the purity of heart of the Christian is truly an astonishing manifestation of the Spirit's work. In Psalm 45, verse 13, the psalmist writes, The king's daughter, which is a description of the believer, the king's daughter is all glorious within. Watson, in his commentary on this beatitude, says this, The pure in heart have the embroidery and the workmanship of the Holy Ghost upon them. And how does this now manifest itself? 
How, how is all of this experienced within the heart of the believer? Ah, you see, when the Spirit of God makes me a new creature, when He restores that heart of mine, there will come a deep and a continuous awareness of all that is impure. By nature, we don't see it. By nature, we're like the Pharisees, as long as the outside of the cup is clean. But when, we are, when the Spirit of God makes us pure within, we become painfully aware of all that is impure. We will then understand Solomon when he says in Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? Not only do I become painfully aware of all the impurity that remains within me, all of that which still defiles there, there comes a loathing of all that is impure, a loathing of all that is impure. Boys and girls, how would you feel if you would have to spend the rest of your days living in a hog barn? How would you like to live in that environment? You would, you would be saying, I need to get out of here. Why? Because there is an innate desire to be clean. And you want to be outside of that environment. Well, so it is with those who are made pure in heart. All of a sudden, all that is impure, all that is sinful becomes so painfully real. And precisely because in that new heart, the love of God is shed abroad. That's why we begin to hate sin. We begin to loathe it. We begin to loathe all that is impure. That's why a true believer will groan before God, will weep before God for all the impurity that no one else knows about except God. Because one of the things you see for the pure in heart is that the pure in heart are fully aware that God sees me for who I really am. And for the pure in heart, when they painfully discover impure desires, impure inclinations, it will grieve them. That's what Romans 7 is all about. Romans 7, where this, this man of God, Paul the Apostle, where he groans so deeply about the remaining sin in his life, where he grieves over the fact that that which he hates, he still does. And that he fails to do what he knows is God's revealed will. It's precisely because Paul was a man who had become pure in heart that he cries out in holy despair, Oh, wretched man, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? That's why we read in Psalm 51, verse 10, that David, the man after God's own heart, David, who had fallen so deeply, how he grieves in that psalm. When Nathan comes to him and says, Thou art the man, oh, he grieves. And you hear that yearning of his soul, Oh, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do you recognize that congregation? Is that your yearning? Is that your desire? Do you at times when you are painfully aware of your remaining filth, of your remaining iniquity, 
Do you understand that yearning, that crying out, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me? And that's why the psalmist in Psalm 139, the psalmist says so significantly, search my heart, he says. Search my heart and see if there be any wicked way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. David didn't trust himself because, you know, even God's children, even as believers, sometimes we fool ourselves. Sometimes we rationalize our sin away. And David realized that. That's why he, he cried out, Lord, wilt thou search my heart? Search my heart and the secrets within and see if there be any wicked way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. But that disposition, you see, that inner disposition also manifests itself in the conduct of the pure in heart because we need to understand a very foundational truth of Scripture that a new heart will always produce a new life. Those two are inseparable. That's why Jesus said, by their fruits, you shall know them. It's impossible to have a new heart and that not manifest itself, be it, albeit imperfectly, but manifesting itself in a new life. And so the pure in heart, first of all, they are sincere in their talk and in their walk. The pure in heart are those in whom there is no guile. The pure in heart become upright before God, upright before men. That's why Jesus said about Nathaniel, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Proverbs 22, verse 11, expresses it this way, he that loveth pureness of heart. The Bible is so consistent, you find it everywhere. And so the godly, the godly man, the godly woman, the godly boy or girl, they become upright from within. That purity of heart manifests itself in sincerity, in uprightness. Does that mean that believers never act hypocritically? If only that were true. Sadly, sadly, we still do. But once we're aware of it, we will grieve over it. We will grieve over it, not because others have found us out, because we realize we're pure in heart. We realize that God knows it. And so the true believer hates duplicity. The true believer hates that which is not upright. Secondly, there will be a radical separation from an impure world. At least that's how it ought to be. Listen to what James says in James 1.27. Pure religion, there you have it. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to keep himself unspotted from the world. Pure religion. Congregation. To what extent am I? To what extent are you keeping yourself 
unspotted from the world. That's a tall order. That's very challenging in our culture where the world has become so invasive in our lives, even far more than previous generations. At least in previous generations, you could say that in some sense the world stopped at your front door. But now with the media, which have so totally saturated our culture, and those media which have so invaded our lives, our front door is no longer a barrier. And so the challenge remains, however. And I'm not saying that we ought not to be using this technology in a useful way. Don't get me wrong. But the challenge is that that, that more daunting. How do I keep myself in this culture, in this society, how do I keep myself undefiled? How do I keep myself unspotted from the world? And if you are pure in heart, if the Spirit of God has transformed your heart, you will struggle with that reality. And thirdly, this this sincere Christian the one who desires to keep himself unspotted from the world, is therefore a Christian who has zero tolerance for sin in any shape or form. Zero tolerance for sin. Again, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm not saying that the Christian no longer sins. Sadly, we do, until our last breath. But for the pure in heart... They have zero tolerance for sin. And that's why the pure in heart will grieve over sinful desires and sinful thoughts that no one else knows about except God. Why? Because the pure in heart understand that even a sinful desire is sin in God's sight. Zero tolerance for sin. Do you recognize that? Is there zero tolerance for sin in your life? That's how it was with the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he says in Acts 24, 16. And herein do I exercise myself. He made a diligent effort to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. Herein exercise myself. A man who had zero tolerance for sin. That means that every day he examined himself in the presence of God. Every day he sought to come clean before God. Every day he confessed his sin before God and sought pardon and cleansing in the precious blood of Christ. He exercised himself. And of course it will manifest itself also in a genuine and sincere love for my neighbor. 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. Listen carefully. Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. What does that mean? Faith unfeigned. Faith that is genuine. Faith that comes out of that pure heart. Faith that's not counterfeit. Faith that's not hypocritical. Faith unfeigned. Charity out of a pure heart. 1 Peter 1 verse 22, Peter exhorts us, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. And so we could say in summary, 
that the pure in heart, by grace, desire to live a pure life, even though while we're here, we have a small beginning, but yet there is this new tendency, that purity in heart that has totally changed the direction of my life. Before regeneration, we are habitually inclined to sin. That's the, that's the, the habit of our lives. When we become pure in heart, when the Spirit of God makes us a new creature in Christ, we become habitually inclined towards holiness. We still occasionally sin, and sometimes more than we desire to admit even. But, but the, the focus of my life, the tendency of my life has now, direct, has now been redirected by the Spirit. Because a holy heart will produce a holy life. Or to put it simply this way, if I use the analogy of John 15 about the vine. Listen carefully. This is an important statement. Invisible union with Christ produces visible likeness to Christ. Invisible union to Christ produces visible likeness to Christ. But there's something else, and that brings us to our last point. Is the pure in heart are those who have a deep yearning after God himself. A deep yearning, a deep yearning to enjoy fellowship and communion with God. A deep yearning to please God. A deep yearning to walk in his ways. As I've said earlier, previously, ultimately what's remarkable about this picture, this portrait that Christ gives us of the Christian, every aspect of it is God-centered. When we are poor in spirit, we realize we have lost God. When we mourn, we see we have, we have sinned against God. When we are meek, we humble ourselves before God. We hunger and thirst after righteousness because we want to be reconciled with God. And being merciful and pure in heart. And peacemakers, as we will see tonight, those are all reflections of the character of God. But the yearning, the deepest yearning of the true believer is to behold God. The deepest yearning of the new heart is after God himself. It is God himself who alone satisfies the pure in heart. That's what the psalmist so beautifully expresses in Psalm 42. As a heart, that means as a deer, pants after the water brooks, so my heart pants after thee, the living God. Again, we can examine ourselves. As I've said earlier, each Christian has their own unique story, their own unique circumstances. But this what Christ gives here, they all have in common. And you see, when God sheds abroad his heart, 
or His love, when His love is shed abroad in our hearts, that will always manifest itself in a yearning for that God whose love has been shed abroad in my heart. In other words, we could put it this way, the life that the life that comes from God, the life that originates in God, yearns after God. Christ says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's our third point, the blessedness. Because seeing God is truly the highest goal of religion. Theologians have called this the beatific vision, to see God, to be in His presence. And of course, God is His Spirit, and we cannot see Him physically. But what does it mean to see God? That means to enjoy intimate fellowship with God. That is to to know God as He has revealed Himself in His Word. And more specifically, to know Him as He has revealed Himself in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, seeing God was Adam's privilege before he fell. Adam and Eve met God morning and evening in the cool of the day, probably for several weeks. Those were the highlights of their day when they could hear God walking through the garden. They knew that God was coming to commune with them. God was coming to reveal Himself to them. Oh, God created Adam to find His delight, His fulfillment in seeing Him and having this wonderful love relationship with Him. When Adam sinned, he became incompatible with God. Adam had to be expelled from the presence of God. But thanks be to God that He gave His only begotten Son, through whom that relationship can be restored. He gave His only begotten Son so that in Him we fallen sinners would be able to see Him again. Because Christ, of course, is the face of God. Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. Christ is the one who said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Paul writes of this in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And you see, the pure in heart, they find their salvation in Christ. Oh, the pure in heart, no. There is but one remedy for their remaining impurity. There is but one remedy for the sin that continues to defile them. That is to be found in Christ, in Christ and what He has accomplished. It is found in that precious blood that cleanses from all sin. That's why for the pure in heart, Christ is so precious. Christ is so altogether lovely. That's why the pure in heart desire to know more of Him. Oh, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection. Oh, for the pure in heart, Christ is truly all and in all. Christ is everything to the pure in heart. 
Because in Him we are reconciled with God. In Him we can experience God's favor. In Him we are reconciled with God. In Him we can behold the very face and the very countenance of God. That's why in the Bible you so often read about the face of God. That's why for the pure in heart, there's nothing more grievous as when God hides His face. And he will hide his face when the pure in heart behave themselves in an impure way. That's why in this life, the seeing of God in Christ is an interrupted experience. It's interrupted by our remaining sin. Because what God does, you see, he wants his children, the pure in heart, he wants them to be hypersensitive to sin. Hypersensitive to sin. And that's why the more we are exercised, the more sensitive we become. We, we, and you will know it. When you do certain things, when you allow your mind to go a certain direction, when you do certain things you ought not to do, when you behave yourself, the result is darkness, spiritual darkness will come over your soul. That grieves those that are pure in heart. It grieves them. There's nothing more grievous than to, to have this sense that God has withdrawn his favor. And so David knew in Psalm 51 that he had not lost his relationship with God. But he had lost God's favor because of his foolishness, his wickedness. And that's why he said, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And what is the joy of salvation? The joy of salvation is to behold the beauty and the glory of God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it says so beautifully in Psalm 42. In verse 5, David says, I will yet praise him for the help of his countenance. I will praise him for the help of his countenance. He's saying... To, to behold the countenance of God unveiled to us in his word. That's what helps me. That's what revives my soul. And in the last verse, I will yet praise him for the health of my countenance, he says. Do you know what that means? I'm going to say it very simply, boys and girls. David is saying, I praise God for his smile, and his smile upon me in Christ produces my smile, the health of my countenance. That's what defines the happiness and the joy of God's children. But there's a future aspect here. There's a day coming. There's a day coming, dear believer, that we will see him as we have never seen him before. That's the blessed future of the people of God. Forever to be in God's presence, to see him forever revealed in Emmanuel, in Christ. We cannot ever see him with our physical eyes. 
as, as far as God's spiritual being is concerned. But the wonderful thing is that throughout eternity, God's people will forever interact with God in the person of Christ. It is God who in His Son will forever dwell among His people. And in Him, we will see the glory of God. In Him, we will behold the glory of God forever. Oh, what a blessed future awaits the pure in heart. Psalm 17, verse 15 expresses it so beautifully. As for me, I will behold thy faith in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Oh, dear believer, there's a day coming that your heart will be perfectly pure. There's a day coming that you will be delivered from all impurity. There's a day coming that you will never sin again. There's a day coming that you will dwell in the presence of Christ forever. When God will never hide his face anymore. John writes about this in 1 John 3 verse 2. He said, when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. That's the deepest desire of the Christian. That's why the Christian wants to go to heaven. They are not heaven seekers. The reason the Christian longs for heaven is because Christ is there. They want to be where Christ is. Christ is heaven's heaven. That's what Jesus said. In his high priestly prayer, Father, I pray that those whom thou hast given me may be where I am, that they may see my glory. Do you recognize that in yourself? And then these beautiful words in the last chapter of the Bible that so fit here. Chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. It says, and his servants shall serve him. That's it. And they shall see his face. That's it. The beatific vision. They shall serve him and they shall see his face. So throughout all eternity, God's redeemed people will have a perfect heart after all. A heart that will be perfectly pure. Throughout all eternity, they will get to know God more and more. And the more we know him, the more we will love him. And the more we love him, the more we will serve him. That's the blessed future for the pure in heart. There's no end to that. Astounding. There's no end to that. Because God is infinite. Christ, our Emmanuel, he will feed us. He will nourish us. He will lead us deeper and deeper into the heart of God. We will see God in Christ. So in conclusion, my dear friend, how about you? Will you belong to those that will see God? Do you understand in some measure that yearning and that desire? Are there those moments that you are homesick, not just for heaven, but homesick for Christ. Can you understand what Paul says? That to be with Christ 
is far better. To be delivered from the body of this death. To be with him. And wants to be with him in body and soul. And to forever behold the countenance of God in him. And so do we belong to the pure in heart. Whose life manifests that purity. Are you consciously and conscientiously endeavoring to remove the leaven of sin from your life? Not to earn God's favor, but because you have become pure in heart and therefore hate sin in all of its manifestations. Again, Solomon says in Proverbs 20, verse 11, even a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure and whether it be right. Very simple statement. Dear believer, I know you often struggle with your indwelling corruption. You often struggle with your remaining impurity, which can sometimes manifest itself at the most inopportune moments. Paul describes it in Romans 7. Oh, remember that in this Christ, also now, there is a fountain Fountain opened with Emmanuel's blood. A fountain with blood that cleanses us from all our sins. That's why the apostle writes in Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. And so we need to conclude One thing is for certain, congregation. One day, all men, all men will see Christ. But the question is, how will you see him? Will you see him as your redeemer? Or will you see him as your judge? Listen to Revelation 1 verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. What a day that will be. I ask you. If you have no desire to see God now, it will be a fearful moment. If that will be the first time that you will finally recognize God for who he is, it will be too late. But thanks be to God. God comes near to us. The reason the gospel is preached to us is because God wants you to see his face revealed in Christ. To encourage you to come to him and to find your salvation in that precious Lord Jesus Christ. And so may God grant that this text will be fulfilled perfectly It's now fulfilled interruptedly, but that this will be your and my story in the end. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Amen. Let's pray.
Gracious God and Father in heaven, thou hast again blessed us with thy word. And again we are struck by the extraordinary profundity of these simple words uttered by Christ. And Lord, we pray that we would examine ourselves whether we are in the faith to examine ourselves in light of this portrait, whether we truly belong to the citizens of God's kingdom. And Lord, we pray that if we belong to those for whom their chief desire is to see thee in Christ, oh, that 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 desire may be fulfilled now through our interaction with thy word, but ultimately once completely when we shall see Christ as we have never seen him before, and when at last we shall be like him. Lord, we long for that day. Go with us now as we go homeward. Keep and protect us and gather with us also in this evening hour. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.